This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Revelation chapter 2. You guys know we've covered two churches so far, right? What was the first church? Ephesus. What was the second church? Smyrna. What was one notable thing about Smyrna that was a takeaway for you last week? We're going to make this interactive. What stood out to you about Smyrna? Yep. The persecution was very severe. But God wanted them to understand that he could identify with what they were going through, and he was going to get them through. Does anybody need a Bible? Raise your hand. Does anybody need a Bible? No? Anybody else? What was the takeaway from Smyrna? Anybody else? I can't call on Bethany every week. <laughs> Was it, uh, what, 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 was, what was unique about the letter itself, what, uh, how, how, how big it was? Very, very short. It's the shortest letter to the churches. Why was that? There was nothing bad. There was nothing bad. There's only two churches that there's nothing negative spoken to the church. So that's great job, Thomas. Whoa. There is nothing bad. Don't turn red. It's cool, man. Nobody's looking at you. <laughs> now they are. There was nothing bad, and, you know, how much can you say to somebody who's really going through it? You know, we don't want to be like Job's friends, 40 chapters or whatever. It's just, you're just messed up, Job. That's the problem. So Jesus wanted to encourage them, bless them. <clears throat> Didn't necessarily have to write a literal book to them. Tonight, chapter 2, verse 12 we're looking at the angel to enter the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? You can say Pergamos, you can say Pergamum. And the name Pergamos or Pergamum is translated from Greek as citadel. And it was known as it was thought to be spoken of as the most beautiful city in Asia, Asia Minor. It was a gorgeous city. It was inland. The other two churches that we talked about so far were on the coast. They were thoroughfares. There was a lot of traveling through them. But Pergamos was the capital of the region. It was inland. It's a very gorgeous city. And we'll look at some more of the facts in just a second. So let's, uh, let's pray again, and then we'll get into the Word. Father, we thank you that you still speak to us today. You are so faithful, like we said, even when we were faithless. You were faithful because you cannot deny yourself. It's who you are, good, good Father, faithful. It's who you are. So, Father, we pray that you'd speak to us individually tonight. We know that you do speak to us through your word. We pray that you speak to us individually, also corporately, Father. We want to be here today and lay ourselves down at your feet, worship you, 
And like you say to these churches, to have ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, Pergamos was a region or was a city where it was in Asia and, and it, was, it wanted to foster as much as possible a good relationship with Rome. Excuse me. Thank you. It wanted to foster a good relationship with Rome. And one of the ways that you can really get on somebody's good side is buy into their religious system. And the religious system for the Romans, besides being pagan and having other foreign gods, the, there, there was something called the imperial cult. Now, the imperial cult, we talked about a little bit last week, but, but it was this, this state-made religion that elevated the emperor or the ruler into a deity, and everybody, kind of like the whole thing with Daniel, you know, everybody was to worship the, the emperor as a divine person. And Pergamus said, uh, we not only buy into this system, again, these areas were separate, it was not Roman yet, but they said, we, don't, we, we not only buy into this system, this imperial cult worship, but we want approval to build a temple in Pergamos that would foster or, or focus on emperor worship for the, the, the deity of the emperor in Rome. So when we take that into consideration, some of these things are going to make more sense for us. And there is one other city that also had a shrine erected or a, a temple dedicated to the imperial cult worship of the emperor. Does anybody else remember what the other city was? We've only done three. So, so you what's that? Oh, it was last week. It was Smyrna. Also actually had a temple that was dedicated to the imperial cult worship. So these things says he who has the sharp double-edged sword. Some people believe that the reference to the double-edged sword, uh, clearly it's Jesus who's saying it's part of his identity. In, in the introduction, there were characteristics of Jesus that, that he wanted them to know about. So it goes through that long list of everything that we went through. And then to each church, he reminds them of these certain characteristics that apply to him. So in opening up, he's talking to Pergamos and he says, it's, it's, it's me, the guy with the sharp double-edged sword. Now, the, the double-edged the double sword spoke of authority. Jesus wants the church in Pergamos to know that, that ultimately he is the authority, not any other city, not any other, not Rome, not anybody else, not any other form or system of worship, but he alone had the authority. And it's going to come up again where we're going to see, we'll talk a little bit, about, a little bit more about it then. I know your works and well, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, this city had really fully handed itself over to cultic worship. There were four, cult, uh, four religious systems that were the, the main uh, 
main ones of the world at that time. And, and these four most important pagan cults of the day were the cult of Zeus, Athene, Dionys- Dionysus, and Asclepios. Asclepios. I had to write those down because I wasn't going to remember them. Asclepios. Then you, you also, on top of those four, then you add the imperial cult worship, and then you add um, Christianity in there too. That's, there's six right there. This is this prominent um, city with, with prominent, a prominent church, so much so that Jesus addresses you, and he says, I understand where you guys live, and that it's the place where Satan himself dwells. Now, we can say a lot about any of those four, the imperial cult worship or whatever, and we can look at those things. For instance, Asclepios was a serpent who was believed to be a savior, and they worshiped this serpent, this image of a serpent that they believed was a savior and that was a healer. So we can make distinctions about um, why Jesus would say that the seat of throne, uh, the the seat of Satan or Satan's throne was in Pergamos, but I think the thing that really sets it apart to be that and and that would help us understand more clearly, I think is is more along the lines of the imperial cult worship. It's man elevating himself to a position of deity, to a position that either rivals, but not at least just rivals, but but becomes greater than God. Because if, if there's another God or there's another deity, then it's, it's above what God says his authority is. So, the, and, and this is exactly what Satan wanted to do, isn't it? In, in the Garden of Eden and in the Old Testament, we see that Satan's intention was to elevate himself above that of Almighty God. He wanted the focus. He wanted the attention. He wanted the glory. And here's this church in Asia that has, that has so uh, amplified the imperial cult worship that they build a temple to it. And people will worship the Roman emperor in, in a, different, in a different, totally different area of the world. And it's, it's, I, don't, I think it's interesting that it's so closely connected to what had happened with Satan and why he was cast out of heaven, drawing a third of the angels with him, isn't it? What happens for us is that battle is, is in all of us. I think a little bit of it was shared through Steve's story, Steve's testimony of how he, he got there and he, he had gained so much and he felt like he conquered everything and he was the king of his own destiny. He could do whatever he wanted. I've shared with you part of my testimony. I was in a similar situation where I had I had gotten a lot of money, I was in a very good position, and then it was, that, it was at that point when I realized, like, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? This is, I'm, I'm, I'm going the wrong way. This is not good. And I, and I totally submitted myself to God, and he started to revolutionize my life and, and completely turn it around from the, the terrible situation that I had it in. For each one of us, though, there can be, there, there's that pull between the pride and, and, and being humble, submitting ourselves to God. We can start to elevate ourselves, and, and what happens in our walk with the Lord is 
We start to elevate ourselves. We start to get our priorities out of whack. We start to do stuff that we really shouldn't be doing because of our own will, because of what we want to do. We start placing ourselves in situations that we shouldn't be in. We start watching things that we shouldn't watch. We start listening to things that we shouldn't listen to. And then before you know it, we've kind of strayed and we've gotten off course. And, and Satan wants us to believe that, that that's the better way to go for us. Like, you want what, what you want. Like, God doesn't want the best for you. God wants to take away your toys. God wants to take away your stuff. God wants you to be unhappy. So you need to take care of number one. You need to take care of yourself. And what happens is we allow, this is the key word for tonight if you're taking notes or if, if, if you're following along, we allow compromise to come into our life. And when compromise comes into our life, the, the, the authority is less on the Lord's side and starts to become more on our own side. We start to take back that authority of our life. And this is indicative of how Jesus opens up to the church in Pergamos. He says, these things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. He ain't got no authority. You ain't got no authority that I, I haven't given you. And it's a double-sided sword. So not only do you not have any authority that I haven't given you, nobody else has any authority over you either. Isn't it interesting how we kind of submit ourselves under other people's authority instead of really ultimately just submitting ourselves under God's authority? And being obedient to him, wanting to hear what he has for us. I'm sorry to be picking on Steve, but it so well ties in with what we're looking at tonight. It's like, I don't want to lose this customer, so I'm not going to share the gospel with them. What? Like, who's the authority over you? Is fear the authority over me? Because if fear is the authority over me, then I'm not going to share the gospel with people either because I'm going to be worried or concerned about how they're going to respond to me or if they're going to reject me. What if I share the gospel with Eric? straight out and give it, spell it out to him the next time I go get my hair cut. I've told you guys a story how I have a new barber and I've been praying every time I go to see him, I try to talk to him and share a little bit more with him. I've been praying for his salvation and I want you guys to pray with me for Eric's salvation. Maybe we'll see him in church sometime. So I've been praying for Eric and, and what, if I, what if I just gave it to him and he said, you know what, dude, I, I don't want no stinking pastor in my chair. You get out of here. I don't ever want you to come back. I'm never cutting your hair again. What I do? Like, what am I going to lose, you know? I go back again and wave some money and be like, dude, I want my hairs cut. I want to talk to you about Jesus. I like, I, like what, I like what Steve said. What do you have to lose? If something else has an authority over you and you're counting the cost based on that authority, it's wrong. The ultimate authority over you is Jesus Christ. He is the one with the sharp double-edged sword. And we cannot take that authority ourselves back from him either. I know your works where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, that you hold fast my name. So he is commending them. He's saying, I know your works. I know what you're doing. It's difficult. Your position is difficult. You notice how in each one of the letters, Jesus identifies with the people in their struggle. Kind of like when he was here. He's always identifying with people in their struggle. He's like, yeah, I, you know, I get it. And I understand. And when he says he understands, he does. He says, I get it. You're doing good things. I remember your works and, and what you're doing. But, and, and I remember where you dwell. That can't, that's got to be tough. Satan's city. Sin City. Do you ever notice how where you live affects 
who you are. It's almost like there is an influence in certain places. Huh, who'd have thunk? There's some kind of influence in the spiritual realm. He says, I know where you live, and you didn't deny me, even to the point when my faithful servant, my faithful martyr Antipas was killed. I like to think Antipas was the guy that invented antipasto because we are talking about Rome and stuff like that, you know, and I love antipasto. So that's how I remember Antipas's name, antipasto. <laughs> if that helps you, then I'm glad. If it doesn't, I'm, then, I, then I'm sorry. But this term, my faithful martyr, can better be translated into my faithful witness, and it's the same term that's used as for Jesus in chapter 1. There's a, a nugget takeaway for you if you're taking notes. My faithful witness, Antipas, that he says, my faithful witness is the same that is identified in Jesus' character. Jesus is the faithful witness. And I'll tell you something. When you and I live for the Lord, we lay ourselves down, we remove our own authority and other thor- people's authority over us, and we follow the Lord and we, we submit, our, we humble ourselves. Even to the point, like you talked about last week, even to the point of death, we too become faithful witnesses. Which is, if you think about it, which is exactly what we are called to be. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28? He said, go therefore into all the world, to all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Making churches in my name? Converting people in your name, starting a whole new different kind of movement? He says, no. He says, making disciples, people that will follow me. And then in Acts, when, before Pentecost happens, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was specifically for us to be able to be witnesses of God, that we can testify of who God is, what he's done in our lives, and that he is for real. In the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwelled. Antipas is is mentioned in in a couple other historical documents. There's an area of the city of Pergamos that he's brought up. They think it's the same same Antipas. But Antipas was, was willing to be a witness for Jesus no matter what it cost. And I don't say this, like, I don't ever want this to come across, like, as, like, some kind of guilt trip that I'm, I'm trying to lay or something. But this has been a prayer of mine since I was a young, young Christian. I say, God, I just want to be a good witness of you. I want people to look at my life and say, this is somebody who submitted to God, and we can witness the reality and power of God through their life. That's what I want, God. I want to be a good witness. The Ephesians, they, they were on the verge of becoming bad witnesses for Jesus. And he said, if you don't repent, in the church in Ephesus, he said, if you guys don't repent, I'm going to remove the lampstand. And you remember what the lampstand represented. The lampstand is that which holds the light, and, and if you have something that holds the light and you take the lampstand away, what does that mean? It means that you're not representing Jesus well, and he doesn't want you to be his representative. 
And we're not going to get into the theology of that tonight. We already covered Ephesus, but he's like working for a big corporation. And, you know, I just heard, I just heard not too long ago that, that Papa John got removed as the CEO of Papa John's Pizza, his pizza place, because of some things that he'd said. To the point where the corporate board of Papa John says, hey, listen, Papa John, we don't want you witnessing of us anymore. We don't want you to be the person that represents us. He was the face of the company, and he was removed because of how he was misrepresenting the company in his personal life, in his private life, by things that he was doing and saying, even if it was publicly. The point is, if we are Christians, if we love God, our desire, our hope should be that we want to be good witnesses of him. And again, not getting into the theology of it, he says to the church in Ephesus, if you guys don't repent and return and do the things you did before, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to remove my representation through you. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Antipas was willing to go all the way in his witness of God. And so far, up to this point, we have these good things. I think the two-edged sword is a good thing. I think it's a, it's a reminder of, of God's authority in a good way, like that God's in charge. How many times you got to remind yourself, God's on the throne God's in charge. He's going to take care of this stuff. They're in a difficult place. He says, hey, I've got the, I've got the d- big double-edged sword. I've got the double-barrel shotgun. Just kidding. But I have a few things against you, verse 14. A few? For those of you who are unaware, a few is three. A couple is two. I hear people say they're going to go get a few things, and I say, what are you doing? I, well, i got to go to Target, and i got to go to Walmart, and I'm like, that's only two, so you shouldn't have said a few. <laughs> Jesus says, I have a few things. Let's see if the Bible's correct in using a few. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So here we have a situation that we just looked at recently, didn't we? On Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 31 is the story of Balaam and Balak. Balaam was somebody who had the power or authority to bless or curse people. Balak, the king, says, hey, come down here. I've got this people, the children of Israel. They're starting to get on my nerves. There's a whole bunch of them, like a million or two or so. They're they're camping nearby. Let's go out to them, and I want you to curse them for me. And Balaam says, um, all right, I'll come because, because the king uh, appealed to him and said he's going to give him great riches. He says, I'm very wealthy. I'm going to make you very wealthy if you come do this. So long story short, Balaam goes out to curse the children of Israel. From, from the very starting point, before he even leaves, God says, you cannot curse my people, period. You can't do it. He says, okay, well, I'm going to go anyway. So he goes anyway. And then the donkey and the angel on the road, the donkey talks to him. Hey, why are you crushing my foot, you stupid donkey? Why are you trying to, why are you trying to get us both killed, you big dummy? Well, we don't want to go see this thing, and, and God knows what's going on. Can't you see the angel 
God opens his eyes so he can see the angel with the sword about to lop his head off. So there's another sword in the story, isn't there? God's authority. And he goes anyway. And then four times, he positions himself in different parts around the camp to try to curse the nation of Israel. And every time he goes to curse them, he does what? He blesses them. And Balak started to get mad. He's like, I brought you out here to make you rich by cursing these people and you're blessing. He said, I can only say what God gives me to say. I can't say anything else. It's, it's, it's not possible. And then after the whole thing's over, we see later that Balaam goes to Balak and said, hey, listen, I couldn't curse them because God has a protection over them but you can get them to curse themselves. And this is how you do it. You get your Midianite girly girls in their miniskirts to go over to the camp of Israel and seduce them, have sex with them, invite them to your feasts and your festivities, and God will look at them and say, this is not good what you've done, and he'll curse them. There was a whole culture to this religious form of worship for the Midianites. And the end game for, for Balaam and Balak, the end game for Balaam to curse him, it wasn't just the sexual immorality. But as soon as, we have a few different kind of ways of saying it, but as soon as a woman has an authority over a man and uses her body to get what she wants from him, what happens is, and what happened there, is that the other forms of worship were introduced to them. Well, this is what we do over here, you know, like we're having parties, having fun. You should do this. You should do that. You should do this. Next thing you know, the children of Israel are not just fornicating and, and going to for, a foreign god, but they're, but they're buying into a false religious system wholesale. And it's, the tragic thing is that, that if it wasn't for them, they would have been fine. God's protection was enough. But now we see this story come into the New Testament, not only the New Testament, but the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where Jesus is talking to seven specific churches, and he says to one of the churches, you guys, this is the first thing I have against you. You have in you people, Christians, who have given themselves over to the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam. They're allowing themselves to fornicate, not only change focus from God alone to other things, but they're starting to take part in the festivities. They to, uh, Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. And the eating meat sacrificed to idols isn't the argument from 1 Corinthians and Romans. It's not the argument that, that you can't buy meat in a market that was sacrificed and then take it home and cook it. This is indicating that they were actually going to the festivals and these meals, along with the sexual immorality, these meals that they would have at these festivals, they were partaking in foreign deity worship. 
So what happened is there was a compromise. And as bad as that sound, as te- does that sound bad to you? To me, it sounds terrible. As terrible as that sounds, Jesus says to the church, hey, I really don't like this. You guys have to address this. You have to fix it. But they're still being addressed as the church. He still loves them. He wants them to repent. He doesn't kick them out. He doesn't grind them down. There's going to definitely be some reaping where there was sowing, if you know what I mean. And he's the one with the authority. So I have a few things into you. This doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, the meat sacrifice to idols, the sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans we talked about last week or two weeks ago, and it was similar to what they were doing with the, the teaching of Balaam, but it was different in that it was its own issue as well. It was its own deal as well. And the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was people believing that they had authority over people in the church. Nicolaitan to rule over. There is a, a, a status set up in the church, a hierarchy, and you had to go through and do certain things. And, and God said, my son died on the cross so that everybody would have free open access to me that we would all become a kingdom of priests. Everybody will know me from the greatest to the least. No man will go tell his neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And God hates when anybody tries to get in between a person and a right relationship with him. God hates it. Think about the money changers in the, in the temple. What were the money changers? What was the real problem with the money changers? The money changers' real problem was they were set up in an area that was designated for worship. And by them being there, they restricted the space and did not allow certain people to enter, which God had set for people to come enter and to, to come in to enter into worship with him. And instead, they wanted to, there's not enough room for us to make money, so we'll kick the people who are coming to worship God out, and we'll focus this area on making money, making an extra dollar, making some coinage. God says, why are you prohibiting people from coming to me? Don't you know that anybody who causes one of these little ones to stumble, that it's better for them to have a millstone hung around their neck and be thrown into the sea? It's better for that to happen than anybody to prohibit somebody else from coming to me, knowing me, and being able to worship me. So the doctrine of Balaam, the stumbling block, sacrifice to idols, engaging in things around them, sexual immorality, Nicolaitans, repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So here we have the sword again. And the sword of his mouth is what? The word of God. You know what that says to me? He says, I'm going to come and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. It says to me that they should have known better. It's right there. And there's so many questions in the church today. There's so many questions. There's so many things I don't even really want to get into it because it makes my head hurt. So many hot button topics. 
Can this be happened? Can these people be ordained? Does your sexual preference matter? All these questions are being asked and answered, and nobody's opening their Bible to see what God says about it. Asked and answered. Well, yeah, because this is how society is now, and, and this is what, this is, what is, is politically correct, or, or this is how we should accommodate the, the, the culture of the world so that we can offer them Jesus. No, guys, no. The compromising church is going to find itself in a position where God is going to have to say, come here, sit down. Look what I told you. Look what I wrote. This is the instruction that I gave you. What is Bible an acronym for? Basic instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions. It's simple. Here you go. I told you what to do. And here you are allowing this compromise to come into your life. Not only is it affecting you, but it's going to start to spread like a cancer because compromise ultimately ends up being sin. And we can see that Jesus didn't like it. He wasn't happy about it. He says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he says, fix this, repent. I love how, I love how it's so clear and to the point. Repent. The word repent means to turn in the opposite direction and go away. That's what true repentance looks like. And I hear people say they repent and they still keep doing the same things over and over again. I'm like, but you're not going in the other direction. You're kind of like, you know, if I'm walking in a straight line and repentance would be to turn around and go the other way, it's kind of like, I'm repenting, I'm repenting, I'm still making progress in an area that, that I should not be going. But true repentance is that submitting to, asking forgiveness of, and to stop do, to stop to do that thing that you were doing. And he says, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Something that needs to be addressed, it needs to be addressed now. I was listening to a sermon on the radio, I think it was last week, and this pastor um, started going off. You know how pastors go off on rants sometimes? I never do that personally. I always, no, I'm serious. I always stick. I'm just kidding. I always stick to the straight and narrow. But he goes off on this rant and he starts talking about how upset he is because he said, when is the last time that you were in church and you heard the pastor say that people needed to repent? Repentance has turned into a dirty word and people don't use repentance anymore. We need to start talking about repentance again. And to whatever degree, you know, I totally disagreed with him because I'm like, we talk about repentance all the time in our church. You know, well, when's the last time I heard it? Well, I taught about something and talked about repentance last week, you know, but we don't want there to be compromise. So that's good for us. That's good. We can say, good, we're not, we're not going to shy away from the truth and we're going to focus on what the, the Word of God says. And the Word of God says, if you need to repent, you need to repent. Repent. So 
So repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means listen up. Whenever the Lord says to you, hey, take your earbuds out, take your ear muffles off, whatever you got, listen up, listen, this is important. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. This is in contrast to what they were doing. They were going to these feasts, right? They were partaking in idol worship through the feast activities, which led to sexual immorality, which allowed corruption to come in, compromise to come into the church. And, and the, the opposite, Jesus is saying, you don't have to go satisfy your appetite with the other people of the world in the way that they do it. I'm going to provide for you a miraculous way. It's kind of like the, the living water. The manna from heaven came down every day. They could eat it. They made it into all kinds of different things. And I don't know about you, but I'm really curious. I can't wait to try some of the finest heavenly manna when we get to heaven. I'm going to be like, hey, you got any of that manna left, Lord? I'd like to try that stuff. I want to see what everybody was complaining about back in Exodus, you know? He tosses me a big old chunk of lobster. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, manna from heaven. Lobster's so good. But he says, instead of trying to satisfy your appetite in the way that the world says you should, why don't you let me try to satisfy your appetite? And the promise is, if you overcome with me through this, I'm going to be. If, if you keep going, see, this speaks of perseverance. And I think perseverance for us is something that we really should settle down and, and consider today. It gets hard and we give up. It gets hard, we, we let compromise creep in and, and, we, and we give in. To be an overcomer means to overcome those temptations to quit, to give in. It means to keep going. That's what God's heart is for us. He says, keep going. Like we talked about this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's a season. It's just a time. Everything has a time to live and to die, to you know, feast and fam. Everything. There's a time for everything under the sun. And, and if you keep going, you're, you're going to be rewarded. It's going to be good for you. Overcome so that I can provide for you, so I can satisfy you. And the same is true for you and for me. When the world comes and says, hey, you're not going to find any satisfaction over in church on Sunday night at 6 o'clock. You're going to find satisfaction in seeing who won the football game. So you stay home and, and, and you'll feel good it's a lie. It's a lie from the enemy. You're going to be frustrated. On top of frustration, just like I was today when I rooted for the stinking dolphins for 30 years of my life. The dolphins were my team. And then the year that I switched to the Raiders, the dolphins beat the Raiders today. That's my luck. Whoever I root for, loses. I'm sorry, Raiders. What's that? 
sad, sad. I don't. I can't remember why I brought that up. <laughs> you guys remember what was I talking about? Our reward. <laughs> never go up in a tent. Oh yeah, I never. I stay away from those things. Yes. Thank you, Lord, for using Bethany. You won't be satisfied. You won't be satisfied. God gives you satisfaction. His provision is perfect. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This, is, this was one, I know this sounds silly, but this was one of my favorite verses in Revelation when I was a young believer. I just thought that that was so cool, you know? Like, if you overcome, I'm going to rename you, and I'm going to write your name on a little stone, and I'm going to give it to you. And the only people who know that name are going to be me and you. It's like you're bros with Jesus, you know? Like you got secret code names for each other. And this was close to my heart because it was in the early days of my walk with the Lord. And I don't really share this too often. I like these intimate services where it's, I can just be real and we can just be real with each other. But as a young believer, I was going through some struggles that God was calling me to overcome. And and. I believe that, that I was faithful and he helped me overcome those certain things. And after it happened, he gave me a new name. He renamed me. And he said, this, this is your name, Tim, that I'm going to call you. So for the most part, um, it's still my name, Timothy. But then whenever I start to get kind of in the wrong mentality, kind of I start to go, you know, I start to repent like this instead of like this. The Lord calls me by that name. And I've shared it a couple of times. It was probably a mistake because he's supposed to be between me and him. This really weird thing happens. Whenever it happens to me and I, and I start to realize, like, I'm heading in the wrong direction. I'm not doing Multiple people, multiple people will call me by that name. And I'll be like, why did you just call me that? One time, a long time ago, uh, I was in the kitchen at my parents' house. My mom was still alive. And she turned around and said, hey, blank, you know, hey, so I was thinking this, that, this, and that, and blah, 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 blah. And she started talking and talking. And I'm like, mom, you gave birth to me, right? Yeah. You raised me. You named me. You named me. Why in the world would you just call me by that other name? She's like, I didn't say that. I'm like, clear as day, you called me by that name. And it'll happen where uh, a few people, two or three people will do it. Or the Lord will, in my head, he'll be like, hey. And I'm like, man, all right, let's not do that. But you know what that speaks of, right? That speaks of intimacy with our creator. It speaks of relationship. It speaks of, of real, raw love. And I think like, oh man, you know, God we're still overcoming, right? You're still going through it. You're still struggling. And God says, yeah, you may live in Sin City 
where the throne of Satan is. And I want you to keep going. And you have these challenges at work and you have these Christians who have these liberties. I've not given you those liberties. In fact, are those even liberties that they have? No, they shouldn't even be doing it. They're compromising. And he he says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you the righteous, cool manna from the wilderness that comes from the hidden place. You guys hide candy from your kids? Yeah, you do. Because you know that if you didn't, it'll all be gone. And when they're good, sometimes you go to the hidden place and you get some candy and you say, hey, check this out. Like, ah! Ah! Go ahead, you take it. It's my hidden stash. Don't tell your brothers and sisters. Imagine having that kind of intimate exchange, that intimate relationship with, with Jesus. He's like, hey, this is from the hidden stash of manna that we've been saving around here. And I want you to have it. This is really, this is really, if we, if we think about it more and we break it down, this makes a lot of sense. Why are we ending this note to Pergamos on a very personal, very intimate level with Jesus? This is why. Because there's options out there, right? There's options. There's, there's four other cults. There's the imperial cult. There's five. There's people saying that they're finding satisfaction in these things. They're doing it. They're doing things. Even with the sexual immorality, people think there's going to become some kind of satisfaction from, from just doing whatever they want. They never get it. They're always seeking it and going further than, than, they, than, they, than they should go, than they, than they can go. But Jesus says, you guys aren't going to find anything over there. You're not going to find anything over here. You're not going to get any kind of satisfaction. But, but in me, in relationship with me, in every other world system, every other religious system in the world would like to point you to what you can do for God. Christianity in a relationship with Jesus is what God has done for you and how he wants to continue to engage you on a daily basis. He says, anybody have an ear to hear? You don't need that other stuff. I'm going to take care of you. I've got the secret stash. I'm going to give you a name. And, you know, again, speaks of the intimacy. Written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Him who receives it. And those that you tell, I guess, in my my, uh, mistake in the past. You know what the biggest mistake was? Not that I shouldn't have told anybody because God, you know, God, God gave me that liberty to, to, to share that as a testimony and as a witness to him. But you know what the biggest problem was? People think it's funny when they call me by that name. And it's not funny. So if I ever told you and you ever call me by that name, I might smack you across the face. <laughs> Just kidding, I wouldn't smack you, but... That would be mean, because <laughs> it's the Lord's job to remind me how much he's done. It's the Lord's job to, to remind me that how close we are. You know, you've got your little pet names, like this last softball season. I don't know exactly how it happened. Grace is shaking her head now. No? So uh, we've got this, I got this little nickname. Grace would get up to bat. And she'd be standing up there, super cute. And I and I and I thinking, I was thinking like, man, what can I yell out to like embarrass her? Because I'm that kind of husband, you know, I'm not cool. And I said, oh, like a, like a, like a tasty little chicken nugget. And I started calling her. I said, go chicken nugget. 
All right, today, what was the other one? Chicken strip? Oh, chicken finger. I was like, go chicken finger. Because who doesn't love a, you know, good canes or something? I'm like, go my little chicken finger. People would make fun of us and stuff, but okay, that's in jest. That's in jest. But we do. We have special names for each other because of the level of intimacy we have in our marriage. And sometimes she can call me the, a special name that she has for me, and I call her Chicken Finger. <laughs> and I call her the special names that I have for her because there's, a, there's an intimacy of relationship. And just to, one more time to go off what, what Steve was saying. He has a testimony that he's bold and willing to share that, that he roller coastered for a while. And, and it, it, it seemed to me, I've heard the, his testimony a, a couple few times or so, but it seems to me that it's, it's really leveling out. Each time the Lord reminds him of who he is and, and allows him to enter into the fullness of that relationship again. And every time I see Steve, like when he's like this, he, he's so passionate. And the reason why is because of the relationship that he gets to have with God. And the same is true for us. For you younger guys here tonight, this is really important. You cannot piggyback off of the faith of your father or mother. You can't do it. And what I'm telling you is for real. What I'm telling you is for real. When you get to a point where you truly submit your life to God, repent of your sins for your own things, your own issues that you have, and you seek to engage and have a relationship with God, your creator, there's nothing more beautiful that you will experience in your whole life. Yes, the world's still going to be there. Yes, it's the temptation of the enemy's going to be there. Yes, the struggle with the flesh is still going to be there. But you always have knowing, you always have the intimacy of right relationship with the God that created you in your mother's womb for all of eternity. And you can start to experience it even on this level that they were in the church in Pergamos. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that, that you want us to understand and to realize that the, the great lengths that you, that you were willing to go through by sending your son to die for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to you, so that we could be redeemed bought back, bought with a price, and it had a cost. But we clearly know that you so loved the world, you so loved the world, that whosoever believes in you should not perish, but have everlasting life, but have eternity. And that eternity doesn't start tomorrow. That eternity starts right now. It starts today. So thank you, God, for giving us ears to hear. Allow your word to sink into our hearts and that our response would be thankfulness, rejoicing, and worship. In Jesus' name, amen.